1996, Jim Collins was a professor at Stanford University, and he was in a conversation, a business conversation with a, with a successful businessman named Bill Meehan. Meehan applauded Jim Collins' most recent book. It was a book that some of you are familiar with. It's called Built to Last. And Meehan leaned over and said, we love Built to Last, but I also want you to know, Jim, that it's completely useless. Collins didn't have to listen to Meehan's advice about his book because it was a bestseller, but he decided to be curious. He was somewhat shocked, and he asked him why. Why is my book a number one bestseller on the New York Times list? Why do you say it's useless now? And this is what Meehan said. He said, well, in your study, when you talk about a company being built to last, you only examined companies that were already great. That was companies that had good CEOs and also had established a good culture. But what we really need is we need a book about how a company goes from being good or mediocre to great. That is, how does it happen that a company turns around from being okay to being excellent? That is what is really necessary. Not a book about the great companies, but how a company actually turns it around. And so five years later, after Collins gathered his team, he took that task from me and, and said, that is important to study. And he studied company turnarounds. And we're not talking about small turnarounds, but complete renewals of the business and redirections and a complete overhaul of what they were doing. And the book that was produced by that was the book Good to Great. Many of you are familiar with it. It also was a bestseller. But the thing about Good to Great that's so notable and remarkable is that the advice inside of it is not exactly what you would think about how a company turns around, how it goes from being mediocre to being really excellent and good at what it does. There is much counterintuitive. It's not exactly how you would think to put it together. And it's important for us to reflect on that as we talk about the renewing and reforming work of God inside of the church across the ages and the very thing that God still does in His awakening work today inside of the church because it also is not exactly what you think. Whereas we typically think of ecstatic emotions and great orators and large crowds coming out of the woodwork, these are the types of associations we have with renewing work the renewing and reawakening work of God, when we come to passages like 2 Chronicles 14 and 15, we find a different emphasis. It's not exactly what we think. Because here we meet King Asa, who is the king over Judah, and he is the first of four reforming kings in Judah. And it's important for us to ask this question, what was going on? Especially in this first half of Asa's reign. What was going on and what was going so right? And how was God precisely at work to reawaken and revive His church? And what we'll see are three strong characteristics of this work across these two chapters. First, if we're looking in, in chapter 14 and verses 1 through 8, we see that reform begins with renewed obedience. Verse 2, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. This is the commendation that good kings in Judah received. 
And this, you find these commendations at the beginning or you find a condemnation at the beginning of every account of one of the kings. But Asa did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord. And then we find in verse 3 what that good and right thing was. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim. And then in verse 5, we find a further elaboration on this. He also took out all of the cities of Judah, the high places, and the incense altars. In other words, the first thing that Asa did as king was he purified the worship of Israel, and he removed the idolatrous shrines, the places where people would go and worship, where they would offer incense, and they were oftentimes doing so to the God of Israel, but they were using the gods of others, the shrines of other gods. And so Asa was clarifying that this was not how God desired to be worshipped. And then we find in verse 4 that there is a further reform. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. And so not only was Asa removing these false altars, but he was also reforming the people by calling them to seek after God, that they would listen to His Word, that they would obey His claims, that they would hear all that He commanded of them, that they would receive all the grace that He offered to them. This is what it meant for Israel to seek after God. Now, what is interesting is that the words that are used here to describe Asa's reign over Judah come almost directly from Deuteronomy 12. We saw last week that there was a condemnation of Solomon from Deuteronomy 17, that as he exercised his rule, he violated almost every commandment that was given to the king of Israel. But in Deuteronomy 12, we find these instructions. In verse 2, we learn that you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, the idolatrous shrines were to be removed and they were not to be reused. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place." You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And then very significantly in verse 5, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. And so Asa's reform begins in this renewed worship, removing the false images and the idols of the other gods and the shrines and calling Israel to work to seek the Lord in the one place that God had appointed at his temple. And this is the renewed obedience, the program that Asa began to emphasize. And friends, this is where renewal begins in the church. It is amongst the people of God renewing themselves in obedience, hearing God's claim, and then reforming their lives and bringing it in line with God's claim on their lives. But the most significant question that we can ask at that point is how exactly do we step into this renewed obedience? How do we make that happen? How does it actually get actualized in our lives? Because let's be honest, when we hear that awakening and renewal and reformation happens upon our renewed obedience, that we can simply think, well, I'm just simply to pull myself up by my bootstraps and will this thing into existence. But that is to miss something very important 
that is being said here about the law of God. Because it does emphasize that Asa was encouraging the people to keep the law and the commandment of God. And it is a fault of ours that when we look at the Old Testament and we see the word law, that we only tend to think of things like rules and stipulations and commandments. But the law of God in the Old Testament is much broader than that. The law of God that is being referred to here is the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy does have rules and stipulations that the people of God are to follow. There are the claims of God that thunder from it about what it means to respond in gratitude to God. But the book of Deuteronomy is rich and full, not just with that. The first four chapters are known as the historical prologue. That is nothing more than a statement of the deliverance and redemption of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, what God has done on behalf of His people. And friends, if we are to find ourselves renewed in our obedience to God, it takes this precisely, that it begins with the statement of God's grace, what God has done on our behalf, that this is where renewal cycles must start. If they don't start here, then it's simply, simply something that we have generated and we have created ourselves. But Asa, in taking up the law of God and reading it, he was recognizing that he and the people of Israel, the church of the Old Testament, that they were the people who had been delivered by God out of Egypt. And simply think of the order of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't begin with a command, it begins with a statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, and friends, this is always the proper order of how we renew our obedience, that it comes through the statement of God's grace and what God has done on our behalf. And so we're never asked to go step out and to will ourselves into new obedience, but rather we're to go back and to be reminded of the renewal and the grace and the mercy of God that accompanied us in the past, that delivers us today and will deliver us in the future. This is the key to the church's renewal, rediscovering all that God has said, all God's ways and works and all that God has revealed about what He's done on our behalf. And so this renewed obedience, where reform begins, comes from a restatement and a repurposing of the grace of God in our lives. The second thing we find in the, in the second half of chapter 14 is we see that reform continues as we actually rely upon God. Asa runs into opposition. It is a man named Zerah the Ethiopian. We don't know exactly his provenance, whether this was Ethiopia or a kingdom that is found on the southern Arabia Peninsula. But what we know is that Zerah was powerful. And though Asa had had great success, that he had built fortified cities and he had a large army, but what happens is, what's recorded is that Zerah comes out with his army, and it's double the size of Asa's. And so he's under threat. And how will he respond to being under threat? Classically, the kings of Israel would betray their God by forming an alliance with another country and nation. And they would oftentimes then form marriages and welcome other armies in, and this would introduce corrupt religious practices. But Asa takes the better part. He goes out to meet Zerah. And then in verses 10 and 11, we find that Asa seeks God's help. 
follow along, and Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephatha at Mershah. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come out against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And friends, this is how the continuing reformation of the church happens. It happens as the church sees that it is the weak, that it is not mighty, that it doesn't content itself in its successes. Asa had plenty to rest complacent in, but rather than resting, resting complacent and finding his confidence in his successes and what had been accomplished through his reforms, rather Asa humbles himself in front of God, recognizes that he is weak and that God is the defender of the weak, that God doesn't come to the help of the strong, that God doesn't come to the help of the complacent, that God doesn't come to the help of the self-satisfied, but rather he comes to the aid of those who are weak who express their faith by coming to him in such a humble prayer. This is an ancient version of the help me Jesus prayer, where Asa is crying out to God that he has no other refuge, no other place to retreat, that God alone can be his help. And despite all the things he could have placed his confidence in, he doesn't place his confidence in his armies, or in his horses, or in his riches, or in success, or in his name. He places his confidence in his God's ability to deliver and to redeem and to show forth his salvation. And friends, this is what it takes in the church and what we struggle with and we find so difficult, especially as we enter into times of awakening and renewal. We're easily deceived and we find ourselves placing our confidence in that success that we've had. As a young minister, I was privileged to work at Second Presbyterian Church that a decade before had been a very different church. It was dying a very slow death. But under the leadership of Sandy Wilson, there was marvelous changes and a renewal in the congregation's life. And so I was invited onto the staff there when I was fresh out of seminary to work with the young adults. And I began working with the young adults, and there was some good work that took place, and there was even a measure of success with that work. But several years into it, I found myself dying on the vine. I felt somewhat like a religious pundit. I was teaching all the time and seeing good response to that, but I wasn't praying and I felt a million miles away from God himself. And I looked at myself and wondered what exactly was happening. And as I want to do when I'm in those moments, I wanted to look externally and find out what was happening around me that was to blame for this predicament I was in. I wanted to find out what had made me become so strong, where I was not weak and I was not dependent upon God, that I wasn't looking to God, that I didn't really feel any need for God, that I felt successful and I felt accomplished and it felt like things were going right. And the further I got into that quest, that yes, the conditions at the church there was success, and things had gone right, and there had been great renewal. But the problem was not in the church, that the problem was squarely with me. If you turn back to chapter 12, 
reading about Rehoboam. When the rule, verse 1, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord. And friends, this is the threat that the church always lives under. This is the threat that menaces your spiritual life and vitality as well. That when we have success and we see things go well, when we experience awakenings, we are prone to grow strong. We are prone to become self-confident. We're prone to place our confidence in other things beyond the grace and the mercy of God. And for the continuing awakening of the church, for the church's continued reformation and continued revival, what has to happen is we must remain in that weak place and know that God is the refuge of the weak, that God is the fortress for those who have no strength, that He alone can be our confidence. This is what He calls us to. And so let's always walk in that way as we seek to Find our strength in weakness itself and boasting in the strength of God. Now, the final piece of this reforming and renewing and revitalizing work. In chapter 15, we see that reform advances. Not only does it continue as we're weak, but it advances as we respond to God's Word. In chapter 15, after the battle that God has won on behalf of of Israel, a prophet named Azariah comes to Asa, and he preaches a sermon. He gives a prophetic word. Verse 2, hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And then he applies his sermon in verse 7, but you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And the instructive point is Asa's response to Azariah's sermon. At verse 8, as soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Obed, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. That the first thing that Asa does upon hearing the Word of God and listening to God's claim upon his life is that he stepped into further obedience. You see, there were new territories that he had not cleansed of the false altars. And so he goes out and he's not resting complacent in what God did in his past. He's not resting complacent in what he had accomplished for God. But rather, he's pressing ahead. He's moving into further obedience. And this is what the grace of God, when we experience it, when we call upon Him from weakness, that He would be our strength, that this grace is to drive us into further renewed obedience to God. And so this is what Asa begins to do. And then he goes further in verse 9. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. That is, he brought back together the church that had been fractured and torn apart by idolatry. The northern tribes, all a hot mess of religious activity. He begins to bring them back to the true God. So not only was there a religious worship reform, the people of God were being reconstituted together. And then in verse 11, they gather back, to, uh, back into Jerusalem to worship, and they sacrifice to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. 
This would have been the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament. But the people were brought back together for a renewal, a covenant renewal in which they commit themselves to God. So not only were the altars removed, but the people did something positive as well. They gathered to take an oath to the Lord and to be reminded of the oath that the Lord had taken to them in saving them by His grace. And so this great renewal and reform that Asa promotes, and as he experiences the grace of God, that it leads him to further and further obedience. But he's willing to listen to the claim of God, not to think that he has it mastered, not to rest content with obedience that he rendered some number of years ago. And friends, this is the very same dynamic we live inside today, is that many of us have served the Lord for many, many years. And it is easy for us, all too easy, to rest confident in what we have done, how we have served Him. And we can look back on what was accomplished. But God's claim upon you today is that you hear His Word, and because you have experienced grace and mercy and redemption a thousand times over, that you then endeavor out into new and further obedience to serve Him. That that's how the continued awakening and reviving of the church has to happen. And at the heart of this, it involves this great announcement of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That just as God promises to Israel that He has delivered them out of Egypt and brought them out of the house of slavery, this is where we too begin that all new and further obedience, that all reform and awakening and reviving that can happen in the church begins with the simple proclamation of the love of God for sinners and what He has done to overcome the enmity that has been established between us and Him, what He has done to reconcile us and end the alienation. And so to set out into awakening and revival requires the people of God to take the statement of what God has done with utter seriousness and that we find ourselves in that weak position and willing to call upon Him to be our strength. It doesn't tend to make a great deal of sense to us that a revived church is a weak church. But friends, that's the counterintuitive truth of the gospel. It's the counterintuitive truth of being awakened and reawakened and revived and reviving is that we must sit like Asa in weakness and call upon God. And so let us do that. Let us walk that path and let God be our fortress. Let God be our strength and let our confidence fully rest and reside in Him. Let's pray.